New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Money is a human invention, and it is within our power to change it. Has our present economic system been designed for another age? Does it truly serve the needs of the 21st century world? Humans have made up money, and what is to stop us from making it up again? Today, we'll be looking at the present structure of the conventional competitive money system and what it will take to create a more robust system of economics, one that is more diverse and will not only connect unused resources to unmet needs, but will move participants from scarcity to sufficiency. Our guides in this quest are Bernard Leotard and Jackie Dunn. Jackie Dunn is an award-winning journalist from Ireland, now residing in Colorado, and is currently CEO of Entrepreneurs Without Borders, an organization that supports emergent, socially conscious, and profitable technologies. She has worked as a content editor of Money and Sustainability, The Missing Link, a report from the Club of Rome, and has served as guest host of New Dimensions Radio. Bernard Leotard has an extensive background in all facets of money and economics, both local and global. He's a research fellow at the Center for Sustainable Resources of the University of California at Berkeley. He studied and worked in the field of money for more than 30 years as a central banker, a fund manager, and university professor of finance. He's a consultant to governments, multinational corporations, and community organizations. He co-designed and implemented the convergence mechanism to the single European currency system known as the Euro. Bernard, Leotard, and Jackie Dunn are co-authors of Rethinking Money, How New Currencies Turn Scarcity into Prosperity. Join us for the next hour as we explore moving from scarcity to sustainable abundance with our guests, Jackie Dunn and Bernard Leotard. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Jackie, Bernard, welcome. It's great to be with you. Thank you, Justine. It's great to have both of you here. Thank you so much. As I said in the intro, your background, both of you, your backgrounds are in money. I mean, you've really been, as we said maybe before the uh, interview, we I was calling it in the belly of the beast. So, Bernard, can you say a little bit about your particular background in money and finance? 
I think what's unusual is that I've been in positions which are typically mutually exclusive. I do claim I have to be the only central banker who has also managed an offshore currency fund. This doesn't happen in a single life. Similarly, I've been an academic in the field, international finance particularly. Being president of an electronic payment system is kind of really getting into the mechanics of this whole thing, which is typically not done. And finally, by working for some of the major multinationals in the world uh, at one end and then working with developing countries, particularly in Latin America on the other, these are all views that are actually mutually exclusive. So as a consequence, sometimes I feel myself a little bit like a flying fish. You know, fish live in the water. They're born there, they die there. And as a consequence, they have no clue what they're in. But by having been in these mutually exclusive positions, I've seen every time a new, a new aspect, a new dimension, if I may use that word in this context, a new dimension of money. And it has been a trip. And, you know, Bernard, both you and Jackie have um, an, a multinational view. Like, you're not coming just from a U.S.-centered view of things. You've really a worldwide view. So, Jackie, can you say something about your background? Well, my background is as a journalist, and I was raised in Ireland, born and raised in Ireland. And I got to see the functional dynamics of money very close up and personal. When you look at uh, the tragic history of Ireland, for example, the 800 years that um, it did not have independence, we were taught at school all about these these religious wars. But when you actually peeled back the veneer of, of this um, story, we were told, it actually became a fight over resources. And I think at a very, very early age, the penny dropped that it wasn't so much... Yes, there, there, there was a fight for um, religious tolerance, of course, but uh, the, that was the veneer, the, the gloss that was painted over a fight over resources. And then with my covering of various um, famines, uh, news stories uh, in Africa, other things in Europe, and coming here to America, and in the stories that I covered, um, while I have no background whatsoever in economics or finance, this issue of money kept on recurring and recurring and recurring. And to where I think everybody listening to this broadcast knows that they know of so many situations of great ideas that die on the vine because there isn't sufficient money. We know that many, many children go to bed every night hungry because there isn't sufficient money. We see, you know, I were just uh, down in San Francisco and there is a, a pandemic in a, um, an incredibly wealthy town such as San Francisco where there's uh, this pandemic of uh, homeless women sleeping in seats, not in cots and shelters. What's happened that there's no safety net for these women and the vulnerability of these people? So wherever you go, whether it's in a favela in, in Brazil, uh, you're walking along the streets of New York, uh, you're in uh, the cotton fields of the south of this country, wherever you are, the crunch issues, what no matter how it is wrapped up, comes to a story of economics. And the story of economics and the story of money has been so shrouded from a, from a semantic perspective, but also the deep understanding of economics itself has gone somewhat askew. And we're looking at what real people are doing that have no real formal education and what they're doing to think outside the box. 
And by doing that and rethinking money, the amazing shift they're making in their lives. And what you're doing with this book, Rethinking Money, you're bringing the conversation out to the public. It's been one of the big taboo subjects. Sex is out of the closet. Uh, you know, death and dying is out of the closet. Family dynamics, all of that. Everybody is so willing to talk about everything forever. But money, it's been the big taboo, and you're bringing that out. So what I'd like to ask you to, to describe right now is what is the conventional um, water, financial water that we are living in. Can you describe that for us? Well, the first layer of it is that it is presented as, the money is presented as neutral. Just a passive medium of exchange that people use because it is more efficient to make trade with, trading with each other than barter. So from that perspective, if it's a passive medium of exchange, it doesn't have an agenda, Everything is fine. It's just a question then of quantity. In fact, what we are showing is it is about as passive as a uh, uh, automatic rifle uh, or, uh, well, a deadly poison under certain circumstances. Uh, we're not against the existing system. We're just saying the problem is it's monopoly. By imposing that everybody uses only that particular kind of currency, everything becomes competitive. Let's take an example of nonprofit organizations. In their title, nonprofits, they're supposed to be perfectly fine, and they try to do all kinds of extraordinary good things for society. They're fighting like hell with each other to get dollars to function. They're becoming competitive when it starts about getting funding. And actually, sometimes more competitive than the for-profit world, yeah, the, the corporations have no problems working together. Non-profits do. And there is one, that's a reason. I would also claim that if you take a normal healthy family, you put a million dollars on the table, and you come back two weeks, two weeks later, they're fighting. Mm. You're going to have that result automatically. So is that a neutral tool? You know, how can we, you know, we know actually it is a highly competitive tool. The mechanism of competition is built into the system in the way it's created. We can go into that if you're interested. Uh, we explain it in the book. The, the, it, it is very load laden with a whole set of values, which are actually industrial age values, values of competition, now domination, say, and control. Say, say more about that. Why, if, why do you if, say if, that? If I, if I can explain a little bit of the history. Um, up until about 400 years ago, um, when our modern type of money was instituted, um, it was a brilliant, uh, a brilliant move because before then, the only way you could really make money is either by inheriting it, uh, marrying into it, or stealing it, or whatever. It was now possible um, uh, in 400 years ago with the creation of bank debt money to make money out of money. And this created a whole new zeitgeist where it was possible to finance the Industrial Revolution. So, you know, your mom and uh, anybody listening into the, into the broadcast will know that they were told when they were younger, money does not grow in trees. Money is not a thing. Money is an agreement. And we have forgotten that. And what is important here is that we had an agreement that was enforced upon us 
uh, with the creation of national currencies because we are obliged to pay taxes in the national currency, be that the dollar, the euro, the, the, the peso or whatever. But that system was brilliant for the industrial age. Now we're at another stage of our evolution. We're going hopefully into an information way, we're in an information age and hopefully moving into a wisdom age. And what we're saying is we need other types of money than the monopoly that we have of bank debt money to counterbalance this competitiveness that Bernard was uh, alluding to by creating a co cooperative, complementary currencies. And we can give some examples of those. I, and we're going to do that, but I, uh, in just one moment, I just want to mention something that you point out in the book, uh, the three particular items that just really popped for me about the current situation, the monopoly of just doing it in one way, uh, and that's... Uh, short-termism, uh, uh, debt, and unlimited growth, and, and, and then that uh, accumulation of wealth. So can you say a little, flesh that out a little bit for us? Well, first of all, all our money is created through debt. Okay? Most people don't understand that. Uh, they used to think that governments were creating money because they have little national heroes on the figure papers. Sure, and they just print up money. So why, yes. you know, so In fact, that's the not problem? the way it works. <laughs> the government has given the monopoly of creating money to the banking system. So every loan that's being made by a bank, it can be to governments, it can be to uh, corporations, it can be to individuals. I'm going to have to hold for just that thought for just one moment. Uh, I'm, we're going to have to take a break. I'm here with Bernard Leotar and Jackie Dunn. They're the co-authors of Rethinking Money, How New Currencies Turn Scarcity into Prosperity. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Bernard Leotar and Jackie Dunn. They're the co-authors of Rethinking Money. And if you'd like to know more about their book and about their work, you can go to the website rethinkingmoneythebook.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Uh, so we're, we're talking about the, the present system that's a non-dual system, it's just a, a single system. And can you say something more about where, where, how, how that is working out? Well, today, the governments have actually given to the banking system the monopoly to create money by extending debts. At the moment that some, a bank creates a debt is when the money is generated. 
So it is generated with interest, by definition. That's where part of the profits for the banks come from. So they're doing it for that purpose. Now, at having a built-in interest, one of the things that happens automatically is interest is a process to extract from the masses, the people who don't have enough money, to the top, <laughs> to the people who have a lot of money. Because we pay interest on our car payments and our mortgage, our credit cards, we, you know, anything that we, we're Not only interest. that, every product you buy has already interest built in. Because the manufacturer of the car is having, the, the, the manufacturer of the steel is, and oh. so on and so on. So you have actually a cumulative process. Social housing, 70, 80% of it is actually interest. So it, it is built into everything we do. And you're saying it extracts it from the system. That's, it takes it out of the system. Where does it go? Well, to the people who have more money than they need, that and it can keeps actually going there and going there. I think so that it's you, forever. you pointed out that the uh, five owners, family members of Walton, uh, a Walmart, have something like uh, they own 41.5%, this was in 2010, of, uh, of the wealth in which of all of America. You know, it's 40, that, that's, if you add everybody else up. And I think the interesting thing is, you know, we have questions, the other 99%, but the, the issue is the 1% can't help it. Yes. I, you know, and we're also angry at wealthy people. Oh, my God, those so-and-sos and they're hoarders and, oh, my God, and they're accumulators. The system passively makes it happen. And that's a big light bulb to go off right. for, for it people. It builds it in. Built it in. It's built in. Now, the second point is the competition that's built in. Yes. When a bank creates money, when you go to a bank to, make, to, to get a loan for $100,000, say, to buy a house or an apartment, uh, they create at that point 100000 But they don't create the interest. And they ask you in 20 years' time or 30 years' time to bring back 200000 when you pay back interest, you're actually using someone else's principle. So we are fighting for money that has not been created. So what Bernard is saying is the interest on your loan was never created. It's someone else's principle. It's somebody else's principle. So de facto, going bankrupt is part and parcel of the system. And we shame people about it. People commit suicide over it. But it's an unconscious aspect of the monetary and system. It's huge right now. We're, we've we've hit a peak. Mm -hmm. We've hit the peak of this. I mean, so many people. It's so commonplace now for people to say that they've had to file for bankruptcy. It's just at least here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. I don't know about Europe and other. Oh, places. absolutely, okay. everywhere. Okay. So, all right. What's the hopeful vision here? <laughs> what have you discovered? Not just, and I want to tell our listeners, in, in going through this book, you cite example after example after example on the ground running of complementary or cooperative currencies that are running today. And so I, I'm, I'm very excited by this. So so let's talk about this. What What's... Possible here. Well, there's an awful lot possible, but let's sort of make uh, something very clear to everybody listening to this broadcast is that people are using complementary currencies already, and they probably don't know it. For example, frequent flyer miles. Well, they were frequent flyer miles while it was invented for a marketing gimmick. 
by American Airlines 40 years ago. Uh, what it has shown is two things. Number one, it's possible to do very large-scale payment systems and currency systems at very low cost. Okay? Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. If you needed an army of clerks to keep track of your miles, it wouldn't happen. And the second thing, it's possible to change behavior patterns for a long time for a lot of people. That's extraordinary. Because trying to find ways of changing behavior, the only tool that we typically have is real, real rules. Right. Know, punishment. Rules, punishment, yes. Here is an attractor. Okay, you have a way of making change change in that way. Now, otherwise, I would say the freaking fire miles don't serve any much purpose so except the for the change, airlines. What's the change that occurs with frequent flyer miles? You take the same airline. Yeah, right. And that is actually what complementary currencies always do is they link an unused resource with an unmet need. In the case of the airlines, because the airlines are the ones who created this, what the unmet need was loyalty having people go back to the same airline. That's what they tried to create. And what they did is link it with an un unused seat. And there's techniques to make sure that that seat is empty, which is why they are doing mm -hmm. it with blackout periods for mm -hmm. Christmas and New and Thanksgiving and all that. Right. So in other words, there's this, that's the technique. And that's the general concept here. Now, why not use that same technique to address real problems for society? Elderly care, education, Uh, dealing with environmental problems, creating jobs, all these things can be done with the same technique. So to give you some examples of how this actually works in, in the real world, uh, for example, let's take Japan. They have a huge problem of a graying society. 1.8 million uh, people are in need of care. Daily not care. Daily care. Daily. We're not talking about hospitalization. We're talking about just care to actually continue to live in their house. So how Furiaikipu works, and Furiaikipu means caring friendship tickets, is that I go down the road to my neighbor and say she needs to be driven to the dentist. She needs me to help her craft a letter to her insurance company, whatever sort of follow-up she needs. For every hour I spend assisting a neighbor, I get an electronic credit in my Furiaikipu account, which I can hold on to when I'm old and need help, or what is beautiful about the system, I can transfer my credits over to another part of the country to where my mom or a relative of mine who needs some help so a neighbor can come in and look after her. The beauty of this system is, is several fold. One is that the elderly people they surveyed love the system. They said, it's amazing, it's great. I've got neighborhood younger people coming in. I'm forming intergenerational friendships with them. Um, you know, we're, we're, building, uh, we're building a connection that otherwise would not have happened. Furthermore, they can live in dignity in their own houses for longer without having to be institutionalized. And furthermore, it's not costing the government, whether on a federal level or a local level, any money. Now, clearly, if you need kidney dialysis, you're going to go off to the hospital. But the day-to-day -day care, uh, not only of the elderly in this case, but also of with people with special needs, is being taken care on a neighborhood by neighborhood basis. And one of the things that you point out that I thought was fascinating, it was uh, something you called demurrage, mm -hmm. that, that it's, it's beholden upon you to spend this, this, uh, this piece. Uh, and whereas with regular money, People want to hoard it and, and yeah. sock it away, but it's all about flow. You talk about yes. flow. 
So talk about so, the you know, brilliance of yeah, that. Yeah, this is uh, usually, there are many, many types of money. Uh, Furia Kipu is a social benefit currency, but there are currencies that are designed exclusively to be spent and not to be saved. So the, the idea around this is to generate jobs, uh, to create uh, loyalty in uh, supporting local business, for example. And they may choose to have a negative interest rate, which means that the money expires. So you know, for example, that that money, there's going to be either a tax on that, uh, a, levy, a levy on that money, or the money is going to disintegrate. You're going to spend it. It's not to be saved up for when uh, you're thinking of your retirement or saved up so you can go uh, for a vacation to Cancun. It is purely and solely devised as a mean of exchange to get an economy, be it on a local level, a national level, moving. When it opens up the box that we have in our conventional money where we say the savings currency has to be the same as our medium of exchange. And there's a contradiction there because to the extent that you save it, it's going to be less available circulation. Right. And here you can separate that. For some currencies where you just want to have activation, for example, of local economies, by introducing the mirage, you make sure that nobody will accumulate that currency. Right. You unpack it. And one of the designs that Bernard came up with was in uh, Regiogelt, which is a system of about 64 um, regional currencies in German-speaking Europe, where a number of them have this demarrage or negative interest rate. It's purely to incentivize support of the local economy. So there's a like a, a real win-win there, isn't there? Oh, absolutely, because you're going to have your euros and your pesos and, and uh, dollars, but you're going to have currencies at all different levels of society. You can have them at a village level, you can have it at a state level, you can have communities defined by uh, business to business. However you want to define a community, there can be solutions by rethinking money and creating new currencies that can address head-on the issues that that community face. Jackie, uh, I don't know if you had firsthand uh, experience in Ireland when the banks closed. I mean, at one point, this was in the 70s, I think, at one point the banks closed in Ireland for a 12-month period. I think, am I, do I have that right? Uh, yes, um, the banks closed. There were three banking strikes in a 10-year period between the 1960s to the 1970s, and the longest period when all the banks were closed uh, was a six-month period. I was a kid at the time, uh, but I do remember my father being very anxious about the whole thing. Anyway, it was later I went back because I thought it was uh, a fictitious, like uh, an urban myth, this particular story. So uh, it was an Irish a solution to an Irish uh, problem, um, whereby large employers during this uh, banking strike, such as Guinness, uh, purveyors, famous, purveyors of very, very fine ale, I must say, uh, gave their employees checks instead of, say, getting £100, uh, their weekly wages, for example, that, uh, uh, that check would be uh, broken down into smaller denominations like £5 and £10 and £20, uh, whereby they can actually spend them as cash. So it came to be that everybody started writing checks and using them as we would actually use a currency. 
And uh, what happened was that the um, local pubs became the uh, centers of commerce <laughs> because uh, you'd want to assess somebody's liquid assets. No better place than a pub to go find that out. <laughs> but it was also based on a lot of trust and cooperation. I mean, that's the but, main thing. But when you look at our own system, you know, trust leaves our system. And, for example, there can be a currency crisis in a major national currency like a ruble or, uh, you know... Uh, or uh, something. Greece today. Uh, exactly. You know? So it's all about trust. And the, one of the great things about these community currencies are that circles of trust and cooperation can be reignited. And that's one thing that we all so yearn for is for community. I'm here with Bernard Leotar and Jackie Dunn. They're the authors, co-authors of Rethinking Money. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Jackie Dunn and Bernard Leotar. They are the authors of Rethinking Money, How New Currencies Turn Scarcity into Prosperity. And if you'd like to know more about their work, you can go to their website, rethinkingmoneythebook.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. And um, I, you know, one of the examples, thank you for the example of Ireland, that was just wonderful, but another one that really popped out, well, there too, uh, I want to talk about the Kung people, but before we do that, let's talk about uh, Curitiba in southern Brazil. So, so say something about what happened there. Well, Jaime once Lerner, upon a time. once upon a time, this is one of my this is one of my chestnuts, and Bernard always finds it very amusing. But it's one of the most one of my most favorite stories. Jaime Lerner was faced with a huge problem. He had no money. He was uh, mayor of uh, the town of Curitiba in Panana, the state of Panana, and he wanted to level the favelas, the shanty towns that had grown up due to massive uh, migration into the city. No money. So he couldn't knock them down and he couldn't give them uh, social housing. So he said, I had to deal with the, with the garbage problem because there was garbage strewn everywhere. I mean, disgusting. And there were rats and diseases and all kinds of problems. So again, no money to deal with the garbage problem. And he couldn't go to the central bank for a loan. He had to come up with something ingenious, which he did. Um, he sent out a notice to all the children in the favelas for every bag of garbage that was sorted between cans and glass and paper, they would get a token to ride the bus system. And they came they were to come with these bags of sorted out garbage and put them in colored bins, because most were illiterate, uh, on the outskirts of the favela. Within weeks, the favelas were picked clean, absolutely clean. And the children and their parents were able to ride the bus system. Soon after that, there was more innovation where they could get a, they could use the tokens to buy local vegetables and fish and, and, uh, and you know, products. And other great um, designs of currencies that linked unused resources with unmet needs grew up. 
What um, is so brilliant about the Kurachiban story is that um, with these other complementary currencies in tandem with the tokens and the garbage, garbage that is not garbage, it's actually garbage that is money, the people of Curitiba actually experienced within a matter of five years a standard of living that was one-third higher than somebody else living in Brazil. So these are not just cute little things, you know, interesting little monetary experiments. These are these complementary currencies are bringing real solutions and really showing up in people's uh, pockets. And you pointed out that the fishermen in the bay would clean up the, the, the bay. <laughs> that was one of my most favorite photographs in the book, actually, when the fishermen go out into the bay and they're not catching, they actually trawl for garbage and they bring in the garbage and sort it and they get exactly. currency and, and that recycle And attracted it. more fish. No kidding. I mean, like, oh my goodness, here we go. And the byproduct, another byproduct of this is human dignity. Yes. And yes. isn't that part of all this cooperative currency? Isn't that something that it's it's invoking? Yes. yes, absolutely. Nobody should go to bed hungry. Everybody should have the dignity of work. Everybody who are in the golden age, in the golden years, should be treated with absolute respect. And we have the methodologies and ways of creating this world really? right here, right now. Can you tell the story of the Kung people in Africa and and what happened to them, their success and then a bit of their demise? The Kung have been described, they're living in the, in the desert of the Kalahari in, uh, between Namibia and South Africa. And they have been described by American anthropologists as the most conservative people on the planet. There had been archaeological work finding out that their structure of organizing their camps, which is a circle of huts that would actually be opening towards the central hearth with the fire, so that everybody could see what everybody else does in all the other huts. That structure is 40,000 years old and had been unchanged. Their tools had been unchanged, their life had been unchanged. They thought of helping them by introducing a trading with the modern society, and money. In less than one generation, the whole thing fell apart. The people started having their, their houses oriented in another direction, so they cannot see what happens inside. Otherwise, you know, you would have to share. They started accumulating some things. They had the first locks. I mean, simply by introducing money. That's an that was enough of, of a switch to create, actually, from a highly social-oriented, social capital was the only capital they had, to basically ripping the society apart. So just imagine that we've been doing this for a couple of thousand years right. in our society with yeah. that same money. So what we consider as human nature may not be human nature, I mean, it's just you, training. <laughs> if you use that as looking under a microscope, here's just something that you could see in a short period of time. Mm -hmm. Here's yeah, what less happened. Than a lifetime. Less than a lifetime. Here's what's been happening, going on with human civilization mm -hmm. for a while now. Now, one of the things that um, you talk about in what's needed in our economic health mm -hmm. is to be able to be resilient and to able to bring in, as nature has shown us, diversity. So can you say something about this? Well, the 
A single currency is actually very efficient. It makes it very easy and very efficient to process volume of exchanges. However, just like in a forest, take a pine forest, pine forests produce more timber per year that is commercially usable than any other forest. But be careful when you drop a cigarette because the whole thing is gone. There is no resilience. By lack of having enough diversity, you actually create, you can create very efficient systems, but very fragile. And we've been showing scientifically here, this is four peer-reviewed journals and major journals, that we've been able to determine the conditions of sustainability, the conditions for stability for any complex flow network. Now, complex flow networks, there are lots of different types. A natural ecosystem is always a complex flow network in which biomass circulates. Your electrical distribution system is one where electrons circulate. In your immune body, immune system, in your body, you have information flowing. And in an economy, it's a currency, the money. By having a monopoly of a single type of currency is actually at the origin of the instability structural instability of our entire economy, mm-hmm. and particularly the monetary system. And, the, and there's another way of explaining this. Um, our national currencies are great. It's like having a hammer. A hammer is brilliant if you want to hammer a nail into the wall, but you can't paint a room with a hammer. You can't saw a piece of wood with a hammer. You need, you know, screwdrivers. Uh, you know, you need a mon- what a monetary version of a toolkit would be. So what we're saying is, we're not saying get rid of the hammer. We're saying you can have other monetary tools, such as the Fourier Kipu, you know, all different types of currencies that are able to specifically address a need in the way a paintbrush can paint, in the way a saw can cut a piece of timber. And you show example and after example of where these have been successful for quite a while. Oh, there yes. was one up in Vancouver. What well, what was that one? A better oh, example please. is right, the one please. in the Weir, W I R in Switzerland. Okay. This has been existing since nineteen thirty four. Practically eighty years now. And it it has been it's currently used by twenty percent of all businesses in Switzerland. The the interesting part about it is my colleague James Todder from Rensselaer University has actually been able to demonstrate macroeconomically that the secret for stability for the Swiss economy lies in that little currency that nobody ever talks about. Because what happens is that it balances out when there is a recession, the volume of weed increases. When there's a boom period, it decreases. It actually weighs out the process. So you're saying that like alternative or complementary currencies or cooperative currencies, whatever we call them, they're not going to inflate the other currencies like some people think. Say, oh, well, if you start other currencies, then, then inflation's going to come. And they'll, You're saying the opposite. The opposite, yes. If you have, depends on the kind of currency that you're creating. We have in the conventional money, currency is created out of nothing. In the weird system, and in, for example, time banking, which is very common in America now, you actually have the currency created at the moment of the transaction. I sell you something, I get a credit, you have a debit. The money is created with the transaction by the users themselves. So it's always insufficiency, but it is not inflationary. Because you would have inflation if you had creation of money and no goods or services right. to ba- counterbalance it. Right. Here, the transaction itself right. creates the currency. So it's more stable. It's and a lot more stable. Another another thing that I read that just kind of blew my socks off was um, 
you said that the Deutsche Bank actually said that it would be a good thing for Greece mm. to mm. have <laughs> a complementary or a, yes. a, a, a cooperative <laughs> currency. This, I, it just, this now, was, that's a major bank. This was uh, Meyer, the chief economist of the Deutsche Bank, and Deutsche Bank is deeply involved in the Greek uh, debt situation. And he actually made that point. He admitted that saying, this was letting <laughs> some... It's the Pope saying, by the way, the virginity of Mary is a problem. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> you're really out of that box. I mean, he there. was way out of the box, wasn't he? Was he was way out of the yeah. box, but yeah. he made but the he point knew. that it's possible. Well, I, you know, that just reminds me of something that someone had said on New Dimensions. Richard Moss has used the term helpful intoxication. Mm. And I use that because some economists are kind of, I, I use that to describe them, they're hopefully intoxicated with this old system and not willing to look beyond that. They're kind of in a euphoria that we'll keep doing it this way and and maybe it's going to work out or hopefully it's going to work out. I think yeah. it's. I think the situation is really masked. Even you know, just the way they teach economics and what is included in economics and what is excluded. Um, there's you know they they've gone down a path and uh, they're they're perfectly genuine. They're perfectly good people, but they have the blinkers on. And what we're right. trying to do is take off the blinkers. Take off the blinkers. So another another example is in Bali, the Banyar system. Mm -hmm. You know that has been in place for centuries. Oh, yes. And I remember hearing the story, and maybe you've written, I know you've written in the book where MIT or someone came in to kind of help them really. The World Bank. A World Bank <laughs> came in. All right. The World okay. Bank came in in order to kind of rationalize right. the entire water use in Bali. And, uh, well, <laughs> they blew it up. It didn't work. They had to go back to the traditional system. And these were cooperations yes. that had been scheduled for centuries. The first mention of the Banyar system and the currency that goes with it, because basically in, in Bali, you have more than 3,000 currencies. Every Banyar has its own, its own internal time currency. And by doing using that currency, they actually make it possible for those who who have been had the chance of visiting Bali, they have extraordinary feasts lasting two weeks exactly. with extraordinarily complicated and sophisticated, beautiful objects that are being created for one day. And all that exists on the basis of 10% of GNP equivalent for us. And that's the secret. That's the secret. I'm here with Bernard Leotar and Jackie Dunn. They're the co-authors of Rethinking Money, how new currencies turn scarcity into prosperity. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Bernard Leotar and Jackie Dunn, and we're talking about cooperative currencies running in conjunction with our, our present economic systems. How is technology helping in supporting all of this? I think Bernard actually alluded to at the beginning of our conversation when he's talked about frequent flyer miles. It's, you know, you can't run a frequent flyer mile program with a, you know, desks and desks filled with clerks, you know, miles and miles long. It is computing that actually makes it possible to actually keep the balances straight in everybody's account. So there's a confluence of access to cheaper computing Uh, access to the internet and access to social media that is making it possible. For example, you know, you can just go in and log on and Google, you know, complementary currencies or local currencies or cooperative currencies, and you'd be amazed of the amount of information there is. You know, there's YouTube videos, there's how-to, there's extraordinary uh, plethora of information available, very easy to understand, and systems that will give you free software so you can set up your own complementary currency and guidebooks, and it's just utterly all there for the seeking, if you just ask the question. Now, now this is way beyond that older concept of barter. You know, it's you're, you're we're we're in a much more sophisticated uh, yes. area Absolutely. and era now. Barter would be when you don't have a standard medium of exchange. At the moment, you do you have a currency. Now, now meaning that like barter, the, like if I can do computer skills and give them to you, and you can rake my yard, that might not be... Well, if one of the two doesn't have the matching needs and resources, nothing happens. Yes. A currency makes that a lot more flexible. Right. So there's nothing wrong with that per se, but we're talking about making large-scale changes in society that would make a difference in what we're dealing with. Let me give you another example to make sure that we are not confusing the complementary currency process with local stuff. Nothing wrong with local. But one of the proposals is a global currency. That's nobody's national currency. And whose purpose is to program the major multinationals to think long term. That's the key, one of the keys that will be necessary if we want to have a sustainable society. Because it's corporations that decide what we're going to be wearing and using in the future. And if they think for the next two or three quarters, that could be a big problem. We want to make them sure that they think long-term, and such a proposal exists. How, how, why would it help them think long-term rather than because, the short-term? Because of the nature of interest, the demurrage feature that we talked about earlier. Yeah. When you have a currency with a positive interest rate, by definition, the future doesn't matter. Because currency looked at from today in the future will not be valuable. On the other hand, if you have a demurrage fee, a negative interest rate, actually the future is more important than the present. So. It's counterintuitive. Yeah, uh, let it me say, is. I will say it is, it's an alien concept uh, for most people, but I gently uh, urge the listeners to be assured that that is the, fun- it's the opposite to positive interest. Well, we had, this is not theory. No, it actually there happens. Two yeah. civilizations that uh, have been studying in some detail. One is the dynastic Egypt. They've been building stuff to last forever. You can still walk into it. You know, 2,000, right. 3,000 years pyramids, later. Right? Yes. And the other period in Western civilization is the 10th to the 13th century. That is when you had a negative interest rate currency circulating. So people were building Wait, stuff to last, to last forever. Like Notre Dame. Ah, Notre Dame. cathedrals. Right. All the great cathedrals. cathedrals. All the great right. cathedrals. Right. They, what, what they have in common in these two civilizations, these were civilizations that honored feminine values. 
While in patriarchal societies, they always have been imposing a top-down single currency with interest. Interest was invented in Sumer, the first patriarchal civilization. So we're actually dealing with two ways of looking at what value sets went went to honor in a society. And if you want to understand whether you're in a patriarchal society or not, as Bernard jokes, jokingly says, look at the image of the divine. And if you find a guy in the sky with a beard that has no girlfriend doing everything, you know, we're in a patriarchal society. <laughs> I can remember, Bernard, years ago when we first interviewed you, and you talked about, from what I took from it, the teeter-totter of greed and scarcity Correct. at the bottom. And you alluded at that time to now what this book is about, yes. something about sustainable abundance, which is a more feminine yes. sort of part. And you said that's... It requires a new balance between masculine and feminine energies. And when you're living in a society where there's a monopoly of a currency that only has masculine values built in and normal conventional money is of that nature, it has all the young features to talk about it in terms of Taoism. Uh, you know, it's concentration, it's top-down, it's hierarchy, it's control. All these features are yang. And by activating a yin system, we're actually creating the possibility for a balance. And the yin system would bring in... Cooperative currencies. Cooperative and, and social, social values, mm -hmm. family values. Relationship uh, Relationship. Also uh, relationship to the environment. And relationship to the, to the biosphere. Exactly. That is our crisis that we are dealing with today. And many of the currencies that you describe here also really value those things exactly. too. That they are 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 highly um, transparent. If if yes. if if it's serving the good of all, then that's that's what you go for. Yes. Yeah. Yes, because you have to get into a conversation with your community and however you wish to describe your community. And what we suggest in the book is in order to have a successful cooperative community currency or cooperative uh, currency, whether it's working on a local level or a supranational level or anything in between, is you've got to have hyper-democracy. You've got to have transparency and accountability. You know, you've got to have nonviolent communication. So there are a whole number of new tools that need to come uh, together. And we really have to engage in the deeper conversations that our current monetary system, uh, we can actually avoid because you can just throw money, quote unquote, at the problem. But coming together in these new community currencies, in these new local currencies or these new uh, co uh, community currencies, however you want to describe your uh, community, these new cooperative communities, uh, cooperative currencies, I mean to say, is that you have to engage in the conversation. I, w I want to mention uh, many of our listeners will know the work of Bill McDonough, William McDonough, mm, sure. the anticipatory design architect. And um, he's come up with a 25-word phrase that he likes to use because... Um, in, in in really looking at a future uh, that's more sustainable, he said, um, we hope for a delightful, safe, and healthy world with clean water and renewable power, economically, equitably, ecologically, and elegantly enjoyed. Beautiful. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful. Oh, wow. He just, just kind of came around <laughs> that 25 words. There it is. There is a shorter quote from him that I fully subscribe to for what we're doing here. 
It is the need for regulation is always a sign of a failure of design. And our money system needs an enormous amount of regulation. And it has been 300 years that we're trying to regulate and it gets keeps on going out of control every time. The need of regulation is the sign that there's an error in design. Error in design. And, and here we are proposing new designs. Right, That right. can work in parallel with that system and therefore soften its edges. Right. So yeah. Make it more stable. We're talking about a systemic failure. Yes. And, and so you, you're demonstrating, is there hope for the future then? Can we do this? Can we... What, oh, it's happening, wait, Justine. Right. It's happening. It's happening. I mean, there are 4,000. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's basically underreported, but it's like the early days of, of uh, aviation. You know, it's a miracle that these things fly, but they do. There are about 4,000 mature complementary currency systems all around the world. The most common one here in the United States is time banking. That was founded by Edgar Kahn in the 1980s, and there are about 400 of them around the country, and they're growing by one to two programs every single week here in the United States. So um, there are loads of examples, and there's about 50 different types of currencies, and we're meaning with very exclusive singular designs. So we're in a very exciting point in history. And the old system has poverty built into it. Absolutely. But we don't have to to subscribe to that. No. Well, isn't it totally incredible that we define a market... Is there a market for food in Africa? And they say, no, there are people starving there to death, but they don't have money, therefore there's no market. Yes. So, again, good example. the bridge yeah. creating yeah. between a need that's unmet and the food is there. Let's create a bridge. Because we're only looking at it in terms of, of the conventional old money. Con- conventional money system. If they don't have then conventional money, they don't exist. Then it doesn't exist. Yes, for example, Justine, somebody who works at home, say a mother or father raising uh, their family, that's not part of GDP. However, if you brought in somebody to come as a nurse or a cook or something in your house, that is measured. Because that exists. That exists. Or, or jails as measured as GDP. I know, you know? It's and yet it's not providing, it, we're not looking at the health of the society. Not at oh all. My, well, this is just, we could just go on and on with all of these. You talk about hubs, you talk about um, friendly favors that uh, Sergio Lube has, yes. has done. I mean, I, I, I just all sorts of things that, that you have mentioned in the, your book. And I just, I want to thank you so much for putting this book out with all the Flying fish examples <laughs> with all the, the uh, strategies. You, you show banking strategies. You show strategies for governments, for local governments, for NGOs, for nonprofits, for, oh my, you just go on and on. It's just for each one of us. So thank you so much. A pleasure, Justine. Thank it's you. A pleasure to be here. I've been speaking with Bernard Leotard and Jackie Dunn. Bernard, he spells his name Bernard Leotard, L I E T. A-E-R, and Jackie Dunn, J-A-C-Q-U-I, Dunn, D-U-N-N-E. They're the co-authors of Rethinking Money, How New Currency Turns Scarcity into Prosperity. And if you'd like to know more about their work, you can go to their website, rethinkingmoneythebook.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3466. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.